When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United. I'm Matt Ketchell, the Northeast Football App and Engagement Editor here at Chronicle Live. And we've reached episode 10 of our 30 plus episode walkthrough, the history of Newcastle United. Last week, we covered the glorious 1926-27 season and got to talk about Newcastle winning an actual top flight title once again. Today for episode 10, we're covering the 1931-32 season where Newcastle United win yet more silverware, the FA Cup again. As ever, Paul Joannou, Newcastle United's official club historian, is with me. So let's get straight into it. Paul, we're 50 years into Newcastle's 140-year history. It's 1931 and Newcastle are still mourning the loss of Huey Gallagher, who's now in London playing for Chelsea. Well, that's right. Uh, A lot's happened in those 50 years, of course. But in 1931... Uh, we were still suffering with the loss of Huey Gallagher in the big move to Chelsea. Life after we Huey uh, was not easy to start with for Newcastle United. Boss Andy Cunningham uh, began to rebuild the side, uh, trying to fill the void. Uh, there was a notable addition in a Scotland fullback called Jimmy Nelson, who was a top player with Cardiff, who were then one of the best sides in the country. Uh, he joined the club for £7,000. Um, and he was a teammate of Gallagher in the famous Wembley Wizards match. Also to emerge were, were a, a trio of youthful uh, forwards and midfielders. Uh, Jimmy Richardson was a local lad. Uh, Harry McMenemy uh, came in as well. Uh, Scott and Sammy Weaver uh, joined Newcastle from uh, uh, Hull City. And all three were to be capped or, or saying that. Harry McMenemy didn't actually win a cap. He was selected but had to drop out through injury, which was unlucky. And he was related to the famous footballing family of, of McMenemy. Lots of footballers there, including Southampton's big Geordie boss, Laurie. But United struggled that season without Gallagher uh, again and uh, finished in a lowly 17th place. And really replacing Huey Gallagher was a big problem. Yeah, it always was going to be, wasn't it? And they weren't quite wearing numbers on the back of their shirts just yet, but who would have been wearing the metaphorical number nine for Newcastle in the absence of Huey? Well, the the, the club brought in a new striker um, eventually, uh, and he was an experienced title winner with Sheffield Wednesday, who won the championship two years uh, running in those days. Uh, he was an ex-style townsider called Jack Allen, and he made the difference um, going forward. In league action, United finished in mid-table in 1931-1932, but in the FA Cup, they went all the way uh, back to Wembley Stadium. Mm. So is the FA Cup still the main focus for Newcastle at this stage? And can you talk us a bit through the run running up to Wembley Stadium? Yeah, well, the, the Cup was a focus. Uh, obviously, the, they were trying to, to win the league as well, but there were a lot of very good teams at that point. Arsenal were just starting to dominate the 1930s. Uh, so the FA Cup was a good option for the club. And there were some good cup displays. Um, they cruised through against uh, Blackpool and had a terrific tie with Division 3 Northside Southport. Now that tie was eventually settled at a neutral Hillsborough as United won by all of nine goals to nil, uh, the club's record FA Cup success. 
they also had victories over Leicester, Watford, and Huey Gallagher's Chelsea in the semi-final followed. And mm -hmm. uh, they won that one um, and eventually won uh, and, and reached Wembley again. Yeah, interesting that they met Huey Gallagher's Chelsea along the way. We should mention that the night before the Watford game, the quarter-final, Frank Watt passed away at his home close to the ground. He was age 77. A great loss to Newcastle in football and he was preceded by his son, wasn't he, Paul? Yeah, uh, Frank Senior was a great loss. He'd, he'd spent uh, all of 37 seasons um, in effect as, as uh, secretary come managing director of Newcastle United and that, that's an awful long time through a, a huge degree of success. And his son uh, was also called Frank, uh, although to many known as Fritz. Um, now he had joined the, the staff as a teenager uh, and became assistant secretary uh, to his father in, in 1904. Um, and once his father died, he uh, became a secretary in his own right and uh, uh, became a, a, another well-known figure in football up to his own death in 1950. So between them, uh, the two of them had uh, 55 years unbroken service uh, for Newcastle United, and, and that's a, a remarkable period. And, and really, that's not all. Um, later on, Frank Jr.'s grandson, yet another Frank uh, Watt, uh, had a short spell as, at, at Newcastle United in the late 50s, early 60s as uh, assistant secretary. Amazing, amazing. If there's any members of the Watt family listening, get in touch with us. Maybe we can find a job for you at St James's Park and keep the, the lineage going. It, it just goes to show there's some big characters in, in, in Newcastle's story. Frank, one of the biggest, but not as famous as maybe he should be. And Good opportunity, Paul, to recommend your book, The Ultimate Who's Who, where you can read more about Frank and his son and, and some of the other characters who made Newcastle United what they are. Yeah, well, thanks, thanks for that plug. There's a, there's a <laughs> supplement to the original Who's Who coming out next year, uh, which will update everything uh, and lots more information found on thousands or so Newcastle United personalities. Yeah, look forward to that. Back to the Empire State Stadium then. Who did Newcastle meet in the 1932 final? Well, as I said, touched on just briefly, uh, team of the 30s uh, were an all-powerful Arsenal lineup, and they virtually dominated right through the 30s uh, in the Met, uh, the, their old foes, Arsenal. Uh, Newcastle were underdogs uh, and went uh, a goal behind after only 12 minutes, so it wasn't looking good at Wembley. Uh, but United's cup side had character, like most of the Newcastle cup sides that reached the final, and, and they had a lot of spirit, and the battle back with Jack Allen becoming the hero, uh, scoring two goals. And his first went down as, as uh, one of the most infamous goals in, in the history of the FA Cup. It was dubbed the infamous over-the-line goal. And uh, that occurred in the 38th minute of the first half. Centre-back Dave Davidson hit a long raking pass from, from defence towards the Arsenal goal line. And Jimmy Richardson chased it. Um, he, he stuck out his leg just to catch the ball as it crossed the line and it uh, went into the box and Jack Allen rushed in and fired the ball into the net. So yeah, that, that sparked quite a bit of controversy after the game. Probably a good thing there wasn't any social media, but there was quite a bit of uproar among the football community after the game, wasn't there? There was indeed, and it's it's gone on for many a year thereafter. After the match, uh, there was a lot of uh, controversy, as you say, and the Gunners uh, and some of the media claimed the ball was actually over the line as, as Richardson crossed, the, crossed it. Now, pictures and newsreel footage were 
rather inconclusive, some noting that certain pictures had even been doctored. And there was a trend uh, for many a year that newspaper pictures could easily be doctored by uh, moving the ball on the original image and then printing it in the newspaper, and you couldn't really tell. And I've actually seen lots of photographs, uh, original photographs, some from the Chronicle and Journal, where your artists have penned in the ball just to make it look uh, more realistic as the ball enters the net. So that could well have happened. But the referee was adamant. Um, he was a, a chap called Percy Harper, very experienced referee in those days, and he noted it was a goal. Uh, and he was quoted with some famous words. He said, as God is my judge, the man was in play. And uh, Now, importantly, he didn't note that the ball was in play, but the man was in play. So goodness knows what uh, the modern style TV coverage and VAR uh, would have made of it all these days. Um, from what I've seen, all the images, and there's quite a lot of them floating about, you can't really tell. Um, it may well have been over the line, but the record book, book says it's a goal and Newcastle went uh, uh, or equalised at 1-1. Mm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that was the same end as the goal Jeff Hurst supposedly scored in the 66 World Cup final. So it's probably a good, probably a good thing Wembley didn't have goal line technology back in the day. Yes, uh, that's a good point. I, I actually didn't know that it was the same end as, as the Jeff Hurst goal. So uh, that's a good, good, in, good catch. Yeah. <laughs> so the over that over the line goal was the equaliser, and Jack Allen also scored the winner. Can you describe his second goal? Yeah, well, Newcastle grabbed the winner late into the final. Um, he, he went on a 30-yard run, rushed past sort of two defenders, and, and he hit a low shot which uh, bobbled a little bit and went in off the woodwork. So Newcastle uh, won two goals to one. Sounds like a great goal to win it with. He was the hero then, Jack Allen. How about the rest of the team that day? Can you tell us about them? Yeah, the team was a solid one uh, with some excellent players. Um, Albert McEnroy was a was a very good keeper. He had a lot of seasons with Sunderland as well. Captain was Jimmy Nelson, who who I said before had joined joined the club, and he partnered a lo- local lad called David Fairhurst, who later played for England at fullback. Davidson was a solid centre back, and and midfield was marshalled by uh, the long serving and tough Scott uh, Roddy McKenzie, who played through the twenties. Creativity came from uh, Weaver, McMenemy and Richardson, uh, who could always grab a goal up front. And on the flanks, uh, they had two very good wingers, Tommy Lang and Jimmy Boyd. Um, And, of course, up front in in the centre-forward role, they had Jack Allen uh, to lead the line. And uh, that side, you know, brought the trophy back home to Tyneside again. And uh, there was the usual FA Cup homecoming. There were thousands and thousands on the streets to watch a bus parade through uh, Newcastle. Brilliant. Now, listeners might remember I read out some newspaper extracts when Newcastle finally lifted the English Cup for the first time in 1910. I found some more from April 1932, and there's some brilliant extracts that give a bit of a flavour of what the paper describes as the northern invasion of London. So I'm going to read one here, which uh, I think paints a nice picture of how the uh, trip to London looked for some of the Newcastle fans. So the title here, uh, this is the um, Sunday Pictorial newspaper, April 24th, 1932. A little subhead here of miles of trains, how London was stormed by black and white invaders. And it reads, at an early hour yesterday, London was invaded by merry rosetted Tynesiders, 
Up for to Coop, which uh, is a translation for Up for the Cup, I think the newspaper had to go out there. They came in there tens of thousands. Still, other crowds came from Scotland, the north of England generally, the Midlands and East Anglia. On the LNER alone, more than 25,000 were carried in 56 trains, which, if placed end-to-end, would be six miles long. No fewer than 191 saloon coaches in the Cup specials were booked in advance for private parties. On the LMS system, 61 specials made the dash to London with another 30,000 people. King's Cross was literally a study in black and white, the Newcastle colours. Perhaps the most surprising thing was the proportion of women and girls who arrived. The women wore black and white in every conceivable way. The men mainly favoured a chequered beret, but now and again they too went utterly black and white. Of mascots there were dozens. One woman brought a black and white cat with her, a white bow tied, a white bow tie tied around its neck. London sights provided a morning's entertainment for the Newcastle supporters, and they gazed in wonder at Buckingham Palace, St James's Palace, the Horse Guards Parade, and the Tower of London. Whitehall, the Strand, and Piccadilly were filled with merry soccer fans. Black and white rosettes were everywhere. So there we go, one of the big first trips down to London. Sounds pretty good, eh? Yeah, well, uh, the FA Cup was something special, and uh, and it would still be even uh, today. It would be a similar trip to London, and uh, I'm just wondering how much beer and drink uh, was swallowed on those trains going down to London. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't specify, but we can assume it was it was quite a lot, and probably more on the way back. We've got an image here, Paul. We like to flash an image up for people who watch on video or YouTube or everything's black and white YouTube channel. This uh, this image is of the infamous over-the-line goal. Can you describe what we're looking at here? Well, yes. The centre picture shows Jack Allen um, firing the ball into the Arsenal net. And on the uh, right touchline, uh, left on the picture, you can just see Jimmy Richardson just past the goal line. And he had just mm. crossed the ball for Allen to, to um, hit the ball into the net. So um, there's a few other pictures from different angles and famously there's one uh, aerial view showing Richardson just catching the ball and that's the one that perhaps was doctored or perhaps not, uh, who knows. Yeah, very dramatic picture. He's obviously steamed in there to, to meet the cutback and uh, keeper's got no chance from, from that range but just glad that it, it counted. Yep, that's right. Uh, and it has gone down in history, and it's still talked about even today in some quarters, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So moving on then to the following season, uh, were Newcastle able to carry any of the momentum from this 1932 Cup final win into their domestic campaign? Well, they did to a degree. Um, as Cup winners, uh, Newcastle had a much better season in 32-33. Um, uh, United finished in fifth place, and it seemed... That Andy Cunningham had fashioned a decent lineup. There was plenty experienced and international footballers in the side. Um, and one player stood out, and he was Sammy Weaver. He stepped up and played for England, um, and he was a gem of a player. And Weaver uh, was a polished, powerful midfielder. He, he was developed at Hull uh, when ex Newcastle star Bill McCracken was manager there, uh, and he joined Newcastle in 1929 uh, for £2,500. Remembered, or Weaver was remembered famously for mastering uh, the art of the long throw um, mm. with a much heavier ball back then, remember. Uh, it wasn't the light plastic type ball that we've got these days. Um, it was a pretty heavy uh, leather uh, case ball. Uh, but he was much 
he was a, he wasn't just a long long throw expert. He was a very uh, good midfielder. He was established as an England halfback with Newcastle. He had terrific work rate, stamina, um, and he led Newcastle's midfield for seven seasons, uh, totaling 230 appearances, scoring 43 goals. Uh, but as we'll see, Newcastle's relegation saw him move back to the top level with Chelsea in as 1936-37 started. But he had a good spell with Newcastle and uh, one of the best players during those interwar years. Yeah, that's great. A, a name I'd not really heard of, to be honest, Sammy Weaver. So thanks for sharing that with us. He sounds like some player. And uh, we're going to find out in the next episode that it's, it's not all... FA Cup wins and parades as uh, we're going to cover 1933 to 1939 Newcastle relegated for the first time and uh, get stuck in a bit of a second division rut and before we go Paul we've had a listener question that I was wondering if you could answer it's from a, a Mr Anthony Shearer no relation but he asks I'm intrigued to know why West End weren't discussed more I, I understand East End were more prominent in forming United with West End going bust but surely they're as big a part of the history well, that's a good question. Um, of course, Newcastle West End uh, were a totally different club to United's pioneers, uh, Stanley FC and Newcastle East End, um, when they changed their name. So, you know, they, they aren't really part of uh, Newcastle United's history. They were formed just after Stanley uh, were uh, created and had a separate route over the next uh, 10 years. Um, they became a limited, limited company like, like Newcastle East End, uh, they had a different setup, a different board altogether, and uh, were based at St James's Park, of course. They became Newcastle East End's great rivals and interest, and had a very interesting decade over that period. Uh, but by the summer of 1892, they ran into financial problems. Uh, they folded, and as we know, the, the, the directors of, of West End offered... Uh, their assets, players, uh, some of the some of the directors as well, as well as the lease of St James's Park to the to the East End club, and and that's obviously how Newcastle East End moved to St James's Park, and very shortly after that changed their name to Newcastle United. So you know why weren't we why weren't we focusing on Newcastle West End? Well, as I said, the the, the bottom line is they were a different club, um, but they do deserve uh, uh, they do have a very important part in Newcastle East End's story and, and it's on my list to, to to maybe get into the detail of that even more and, and maybe produce a little booklet about Newcastle West End. We have covered them already, of course, in, in my uh, uh, story called Pioneers of the North, uh, which tells how football developed on Tyneside and there's chapters on Newcastle West End uh, as there are on Newcastle East End. So, uh, Mr Shearer, thanks for that question and I suggest you go and buy Pioneers of the North. Absolutely, yeah. It's a great read. I can I can uh, confirm that. And if you if you are really interested in the very early origins of the game in the North East, it's a, an essential one. So, thanks for the question. If you have a history question, you can email those into the EIBW podcast at reachplc.com or tweet me I'm at Ketchell on Twitter and I can ask Paul a question on your behalf. We'll be back next week 
to chat about how Newcastle deal with their first relegation. In the meantime, please subscribe to the Everything is Black and White podcast by whichever podcast platform you use. Follow Chronicle Live's Newcastle United channels on social media. We're at Chronicle NUFC on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And keep an eye out for our new episodes of Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United. We bring these out every Wednesday. Lastly, stay up to date with everything black and white by subscribing to our daily Newcastle United newsletter. It's free. You get a morning news roundup and an evening news roundup and breaking news as and when it happens directly emailed to your inbox. The link is in the show notes. You can click that, scroll down to Sport Newcastle United updates, tick the box and you'll be signed up. Thanks so much for listening to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United with me, Matt Ketchell and Paul Joanne. <laughs>